Everything's not horrible. When federal retirees open their first Social Security checks in 2024, they'll see a slightly bigger number. That's thanks to the annual cost of living adjustment, or COLA. The adjustment is meant to keep Social Security recipients on pace with inflation. Not all federal retirees get the full amount. Here to break down this year's numbers, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And, all right, what is the COLA amount for this year and how do they get there? Starting in 2024, Social Security recipients will get a 3.2% cost of living adjustment, or COLA. And the percentage is generally meant to keep federal retirees and other Social Security recipients on pace with rising inflation over the years. So, you know, this is an annual adjustment that occurs every January, and the announced rate is typically com- comes around mid-October. And that's based on the Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Price Index for Urban Wage Earners and Clerical Workers, or CPIW. So based on that price index, they found that inflation is around 3.2%. And just quickly in numbers here, if, for example, you get an $1,800 Social Security check, that's around average of what a lot of recipients get, a 3.2% increase would be about $58 more take-home per check. That's right. And the inflation came in steady last month anyway. It was about 3.7%. So if that holds for the year, then the number is not too far off. But it tends to pace a little bit behind inflation, right? Because there are assumptions about how people live and what they buy in retirement versus the general population living with inflation across the board. Right. And that is a question that um, at least a couple lawmakers are asking, you know, is this the right price index, at least for the COLA to be based on? But as it exists right now, that CPIW price index, it is based on the third quarter. So July, August and September amounts. And then they kind of calculate from there what the COLA will be for the following year. All right. And that is a decent COLA, but it's a lot smaller than the one that came last year, correct? Much smaller. Last year's COLA was 8.7%. That is huge. It's the largest in over 40 years. We know that, of course, inflation rates last year were quite high, and that's why the 8.7% number was there. Also in 2022, the COLA was 5.9%. So we've had a couple of years of big COLAs. Now it seems to be shrinking back down a little bit. If you look maybe the past decade or so, it's been between 0 and 2% generally, but that 8.7% last year was a, a quite sizable one. Yeah, well, it's a smaller COLA, and I guess the good news is inflation is a little bit more under control. I mean, there have been years over the decades with no COLA when the economy is great and the inflation is non-existent. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if you look back in, for example, 2016, there was a 0% COLA in 2017, 0.3%. So there were some really small numbers even just, you know, not even a decade ago. And do these numbers roll forward to future earnings when people do retire and start collecting? Do those numbers go up proportionately also? Yeah. So each year that you are on Social Security, that you get that COLA added to whatever your Social Security check is on top of whatever adjustments there were years prior. The idea is over time, whether it's years, decades, that you're on Social Security, you are keeping keeping pace with the inflation rates that your Social Security checks actually do mean something and hold, continue to hold value. All right. And then there is the idea of the diet cola. Some people don't get the full cola special cases. Review for us what those are. This is specific to federal retirees. There's two federal retirement systems. One is the civil service retirement system. This is the older retirement system for 
uh, federal employees. And then the newer system, which switched over in about the mid-80s, the Federal Employee Retirement System, or FERS. And when they made that switch, Congress decided that FERS retirees, because they have the Thrift Savings Plan and they have um, all these other benefits that SERS retirees don't get, they decided to adjust the COLA for what FERS retirees should get. So FERS retirees get slightly less. It depends on how big the COLA is each year. But in this instance, while SERS retirees and other Social Security recipients will get 3.2%, FERS retirees will get 2.2% in their cost of living adjustment starting in 2024. And this is not to be confused with the so-called evil twin backouts for certain classes of, that's a whole other story. Right. That is a separate case. But in this in this specific instance, this just affects the COLA within uh, Social Security benefits. All right. And I can imagine, but the federal unions probably don't like the diet cola idea for FERS employees. And have they weighed in on this and some of the employee representative groups that are outside the unions? Absolutely, Tom. This is something, of course, that, as you suggested, federal unions and other groups are largely against the idea that FERS retirees receive a smaller cola. They say, you know, this is an unfair policy that over time doesn't account for the cost of inflation as much as all other Social Security beneficiaries get. The National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, or NARF, they have been one of the strongest advocates for getting that full COLA for FERS retirees. And SERS beneficiaries that only have their federal pension, it's a much larger pension, they don't get Social Security because they didn't pay toward it, they are cost of living adjusted under SERS, their annuity. Right. And FERS annuitants also get cost of living increases too, automatically under the FERS part of the pension. Correct. Both FERS and SERS retirees get that. Yeah, so that's strange what the reasoning would be that the Social Security portion would not get the full cost of living adjustment because it all adds up to 100% of what you're getting, and so it should all be subject to the full COLA is what the reasoning there is. There's a bill, though, that would change this. Is this a perennial and probably won't pass again this year either? I can't say for sure what will happen this year with the bill, but it is one that has been around since 2018. It's called the Equal COLA Act. Representative Jerry Connolly of Virginia has been one of the strongest advocates for this bill and reintroduced it now, I believe, five times over, as well as Senator Alex Padilla in the Senate. This would essentially give FERS retirees the full COLA for their Social Security benefits and just put them on pace with SERS retirees and other Social Security annuitants as well. This is something, of course, NARF, federal unions, and others have advocated for. Those who are FERS retirees would probably like to see that as well, but it's not something that has had any action in the last five years that it's been introduced. And over the years, there have been different gambits to change the way the COLA is calculated, because if you base it on non-generic drugs at the drugstore, for example, you might have one inflation figure for drugs. If you go by generics, it's another. And so there is attempts from time to time to tie the COLA adjustment to the reality of what people might be buying in their market basket. Anything happening like that this year? There is a bill called the Fair COLA for Seniors Act. It's just a bill. It's not actually how the adjustment works. If the bill was enacted, it would require Social Security Administration to calculate the COLA based on the Consumer Price Index for the Elderly, or CPIE, instead of the CPIW, which is what it is currently calculated by. The idea here is that the CPIE has different weights added to certain spending habits. So, for example, it emphasizes healthcare spending. This is something that elderly people do have 
a larger share of costs there. So it's it's focused generally on individuals who are 62 years old and up, and that's also the minimum age requirement for those who receive the COLA. You know, advocates of that legislation have said this simply makes sense. It's, you know, these are the people who are getting Social Security benefits. It should be calculated based on their spending patterns and their spending habits. Again, this is one that has been introduced for a couple of years but has not had any action on it. Right. So the early bird specials drive your restaurant costs down when you get to be elderly, but the health care costs make it go through the roof. They should probably get 20% COLAs based on health care costs, but that's not going to happen either. To reiterate, the COLA next year will be? 3.2% for most Social Security recipients. FERS retirees will receive 2.2% COLA. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. You are on top of all these things, I must say. Let's uh, make sure you find her story at federalnewsnetwork.com, where all of the coverage of pay and benefits is there for you. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? 
Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake and what is that and um, I think most important what did you take away from that what did you learn from that well I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders we have to learn to recognize our mistakes admit our mistakes and that they are opportunities to learn and so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in- would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.